I always say diagnosis day is probably one of the worst days in your life. You don't think you can go on, you don't think your child can go on, but you do. Genetics isn't always black and white, and the emotions and decisions surrounding genetic testing can be even more complex. Welcome to Patient Stories with Gray Genetics. I'm Eleanor Griffith, a certified genetic counselor and the founder of Gray Genetics, a telehealth genetic counseling and consulting service. It seems like there are constantly headlines in the news about genetics, but few news stories focus on the patient experience. At Gray Genetics, we are collecting patient stories, your stories. Every other Tuesday, we share an interview with a patient or a genetic counselor. In the first 10 days of life, if it's detected, it can be treated and you can end up with a pretty normal outcome in terms of your development. So we were in the right place at the right time, but it's such a rare disease, people weren't really asking the right questions. It's a club you'd never want to belong to. You'd never wish anyone had to belong to it. But when you're in it, you meet the most amazing people. Daniel DeFabio is the co-founder of the Rare Outreach Coalition, which organizes an annual rare disease film festival. Daniel had two sons. His son, Lucas, had a diagnosis of Minky's disease and died in June 2020 at age 11. Due to COVID, the May 2017 Rare Disease Film Festival was postponed, and the Rare Outreach Coalition has instead taken the opportunity to launch an online streaming channel, the Disorder Channel, which will feature rare disease films. So, Daniel, thank you so much for speaking with me. Yeah, thank you for having me, Eleanor. So I know we actually connected really briefly several months ago, um, and then this interview got postponed. Um, your son, Lucas, had Minky's disease, and he died just two months ago. Um, when we were in the middle of scheduling this interview, I'm really sorry to, to hear about that. Can you tell me more about your son, Lucas, and how Minky's disease affected him? Sure. Um, you know, when he was our first child, and probably like a lot of... Um, brand new parents. We were, you know, so thrilled with his birth. And we, we actually said aloud to ourselves, how did we get so lucky to be, you know, to be parents to this most wonderful boy in the world? I'm sure a lot of parents say that, but the difference maybe is that we continued to say that we never stopped saying that despite all the challenges that uh, lay ahead for us. And he spent his first days, first 10 days in a NICU unit because he was born with a skull fracture. And, uh, so he had people like neurologists looking at him for how did the skull fracture happen? And, you know, nobody really came up with an answer. And then a year later, when we found out he had Menke's disease, we learned really ironically and tragically that in the first 10 days of life, if it's detected, it can be treated and you can end up with a pretty normal outcome in terms of your development. So we were in the right place at the right time, but it's such a rare disease, people weren't really asking the right questions. Right. And if this is one of those conditions that's not part of newborn screening, correct? It wasn't then. It is beginning to be now. I'm really proud that um, the Menkes Foundation has uh, really pushed that forward. Okay. So at what point did you finally get a diagnosis of Menkes disease for Lucas? Yeah. At four months, we saw some developmental delays. Um, we weren't quite sure they were, uh, you know, out of the normal range. Mm -hmm. And then at eight months, he actually regressed in his abilities, uh, which were already limited. So being able to roll from back to front, um, he could do that at eight months and then he lost that ability. And that was enough to send us to a uh, specialist and eventually a geneticist. And the geneticist um, 
Lucas was nine months and he said, looking at his hair, because Menke's disease is also called kinky hair syndrome. Uh, he said, I think we want to look at something copper related. And he spent a couple of months looking into that. And meanwhile, I'm checking Google and there's only two copper related conditions. And one is Wilson and the other is Menke's disease. Mm-hmm. And um, Wilson's disease is, uh, you know, bad in its own way, but it's, you can be a relatively functional adult, <laughs> you know. Uh, so I was rooting for that. And of course, the news came in January. I think the geneticist wanted to wait till Christmas had passed so we could enjoy a sort of normal Christmas. Um, and the news came that it was Minky's disease. And, you know, it just hits like, a, I, I always say diagnosis day is probably one of the worst days in your life. Yeah. How did you get that diagnosis? Did you actually go in for an, a, an appointment with a geneticist again? Was there a genetic counselor there? Or is it something that they, they told you at all over the phone? Right. So, you know, an initial visit with an exam, I, I think there were some, you know, blood samples taken and you know, I'm not sure exactly, you know, uh, where they sent for a DNA test. But the good news was as rare as Menke's disease is, this particular geneticist had seen one or two other cases. So he kind of knew what to look for. And then in terms of delivering the news, um, you know, he somewhat rightly um, was happy and proud to have arrived at a diagnosis, which was his job to do. Mm. But this is not happy news, you know. So it was an odd tone to the uh, delivery of the news of like, congratulations, you have a diagnosis your child is going to die. You know, it's, it was, it was terrible. Now, luckily, yes, there was a genetic counselor involved. So after the geneticist leaves the room, the genetic counselor sort of tries to bring in the bedside manner and the, the, a little bit of the, whatever comfort there could be had, which was not much, but Mm -hmm. it was a comfort. It was a much needed, um, uh, part of the experience. And I'm, forever in admiration of genetic counselors because of that. And Lucas was nine months old at the time? Well, nine months when we looked for a diagnosis and about one year when we got the diagnosis. Okay. Yeah. I, 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 it's, it's interesting to hear about people's experiences with geneticists and genetic counselors, um, you know, outside of just like being one myself in the clinic, cause you get a different take <laughs> kind of like depending what people's experiences were. But, um, yeah, that sounds like pretty tone deaf. Like his, the congratulations, if your son had been like eight years old, like maybe that would have been a congratulations moment, but at one year old, when you really, um, you know, you don't know what his development's going to be like. Um, it's definitely really hard news. I've never heard that term before diagnosis day. Oh, yeah. And I've heard enough of these stories from other rare disease families. Some have a very similar experience where, you know, you could think of the geneticist as bad cop and the genetic counselor as good cop, uh, which is an oversimplification. But um, I can also appreciate there's so many undiagnosed people and they can spend, I think the average is five to seven years trying to get a diagnosis. And if you can say we were lucky in a way, we were lucky to get a diagnosis in just a few months. And from the geneticist's point of view, this is fast, quick success, right? Yeah. But it's it's not welcome news. And, you know, that's something a genetic counselor may be more appreciative of. 
Yeah. Yeah. Or we are supposed to, um, or at least our goal is to try to, you know, see things from the patient's perspective. <laughs> um, what were you told that the diagnosis of Menke's disease would mean for Lucas's life at that point, um, either by the geneticist or the genetic counselor? Yeah, uh, it's it's hard now to remember what we were actually told by them and what I had learned in my own Google amateur research, but we knew the prognosis was um, probably three years, three to 10 years at the outside was, was what we were told. And, you know, kind of anything else that was said after that, you know, it was hard to hear. You know, that's just that's just the earth-changing new reality that you're dealing with, right? Right. How did that diagnosis change your relationship with him and how you thought about Lucas going forward and being a parent to him? It, um, it certainly made everything precious, you know, time precious for, for certainly time precious. And, and then that, um, it took a while, but it took, a, it took us re-evaluating and, and coming to a new understanding of expectations, right? So we weren't going to expect him to walk and talk. Um, we weren't going to expect him to have a normal school experience. We weren't even sure if he would go to school. And those things were all hard to deal with, especially I measure everything from diagnosis day. And I think the closer you are to diagnosis day, the harder these things are. And hopefully mm -hmm. you... Um, you can come to terms with them a little bit as time goes on. But the good that came out of it was how we could focus on what happiness meant for Lucas. And it was very mm -hmm. simple for him. It was to enjoy his family and to have the people he liked close to him. And he didn't really need much. You know, it, it didn't require a trip to Disneyland to make him happy. It just required us being in the room with him. And that shifts your whole worldview, right? That's um, a reprioritization reprior that uh, sounds easy. And, it, and like I said, didn't require um, enormous effort, but it did require focus. You know, it, it required attention. And you, when you say we, is this you and your wife? Right, yeah. Did and eventually, you react? eventually, when we had our second son, he, he came along for this journey, too. Okay. Yeah. Did you and your wife, did you react in, in similar ways? Or was this something that was hard for, for you to talk about? Um, we were, in the broad sense, always on the same page. But we did have different approaches. Mine was uh, more outward-facing. My wife would say she's more family-centered and, you know, focused on our immediate circumstances. And I was more about what research can I learn? What can I share my story? Can I learn more from others if I share my story? And eventually, of course, I did that with, with blog postings and with making a film about Lucas and some other boys with Menke's disease. And for me, that engagement with the broader community, both Menke's families and rare disease families in general, that is a comfort to me. And that is a uh, sort of sense of purpose and fulfillment to me that is the maybe silver lining in all this. Whereas my wife's approach was much more micro level rather than macro level. Like what are Lucas's needs? How can I adapt equipment 
to better suit our child? Is there a diet that I can create for our child? You know, so she earned a nickname of Mom Giver because she was so innovative with some of the special needs equipment that maybe didn't exist. So she had to make it herself. Yeah. And was the diagnosis of Menke's disease helpful in knowing which of those um, adjustments and adaptations would be would be best for him? It is helpful, definitely. I, I think some of the symptoms, let's say we were undiagnosed, I think a lot of treating the symptoms could have gone on a similar path. But there are procedural things where you have to check boxes and Without a diagnosis, it can be a nightmare to say, well, why do you think your child is qualified for this or this service or this, you know, eligibility requirement? We even got to a point, I can't remember the exact phrasing, but it was something like mental inability or diminished mental capacity or might have even said mental retardation. And we didn't have that box checked on a form and it stopped Mm -hmm. us from getting some service we needed. And we thought, really? You can't look at this child and know what we're up against here? But we went back to our doctor and we got that box checked on a form. So I know other families who are lacking a diagnosis and they're up against these bureaucratic challenges that largely we were spared. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of I don't know, I mean, good, but also like disappointing <laughs> that, the, that the diagnosis, you know, isn't helpful just from like a medical perspective, but really from, you know, because of administration, administrative challenges that really shouldn't be there, um, even for parents who don't have that specific diagnosis. Right. And on the medical front, it's, it's helpful in that because you have a name to your disease, you can seek out your community. And the Menke's Family Support Group on Facebook has been an enormous uh, source of um, information and comfort. And you can't find that if you don't have a name to your disease. That said, the genetic mutations are unique even within Menke's disease. So I expected a community like that to be predictive for my son. And I found out pretty quickly that it was not. It might get you in the ballpark of expectations, but someone else's boy with Menke's disease is not going to be on the same path exactly. And it's, you know, most boys with Menkes have epileptic seizures and my son never did. Things like that, you know, your your mileage may vary kind of situation, right? Yeah. Did you, um, in connecting with other families who had children with Menkes disease, did you meet any who'd had a really early diagnosis where they were able to have meaningful intervention early on and it made a big difference? Or did you, have you mostly just talked to people who also had that later diagnosis? I did. Um, it's often the case that um, Menkes can be uh, de novo mutation, one third of cases spontaneous and two thirds inherited. So mm-hmm. for the people with a family history, they may have had a earlier child or they may know their family history. And so they knew to be tested because there is a test if you know to, to do it. But mm-hmm. um, since symptoms don't emerge for a few months after birth, it's, it's almost too late to test at that point. But if it's in your family history, you can test right away and then start the copper therapy right away. And those boys walk, talk, go to school. They might walk with, you know, a different gait and they may look slightly, you know, 
atypical, but they're having a much closer to neurotypical healthy lifestyle than the untreated boys. Yeah. You and your wife had a second son. Um, what's the age gap between your second son and Lucas? And how did that come about? Did you, I mean, in genetics, we always say about half of pregnancies are unplanned. Was it a surprise or did you um, decide that you definitely wanted another child and did genetic testing um, and concern about having another child with McKee's disease factor into that? Yes, to all of those. So um, <laughs> Alex is two years younger than Lucas, so um, 11 and nine-year-olds. Um, as we considered having another child, we first had my wife tested to be sure she was not a carrier, and she wasn't. Because and, it's uh, Minkus's X-linked, right? So it would have been right. related to any patient coming from her. Okay. Yeah. So we had, uh, we had the test on my wife to know that she was not a carrier, so it felt safe, you know, or, or at least free of that particular risk to have another child. But then even though it would have been like lightning striking twice, when Alex was born, we insisted on a Menke's test on him. And it was probably a overabundance of caution because, you know, he was not uh, positive for Menke's disease, but at least we had that comfort right off the bat. Uh-huh. So Lucas just passed away recently at 11 years of age, um, and you'd said that people with Minkie's disease can live usually anywhere from three years of age to 10 years of age, so on the longer end for someone with Minkie's disease. What was his relationship like with, with Alex, who's now nine years old? Is that right? Yeah, so you know Lucas did beat the odds in terms of the upper limit of the prognosis for the age range, and, and I remember thinking that as he turned 11, like, you know, the good news is we're we're beating the odds. The bad news is maybe we're, we're now into borrowed time. But Lucas's relationship with Alex has always been, um, I would say Alex was his favorite person. You know, mm -hmm. he, any, the slightest bit of attention from Alex would send Lucas into peals of laughter and big smiles. And it was always a highlight for him to get anything from Alex, you know, a snuggle, a kiss, a, a little activity, especially if it was an activity that would be normally done by mom or dad. And then suddenly it's being done by Alex that just cracked him up. <laughs> In fact, one of the last moments of Lucas's life was, um, he, he wasn't feeling so well, of course, it was a struggle to get smiles out of him, but we had started asking Alex as he got a little older to do a little bit of the medical stuff, not much, but attach a food tube, you know, just for venting purposes. Mm -hmm. And for Lucas to see his little brother come to his belly port and push something in there that his parents usually do, it was pretty clear that Lucas's expectations were, this is an adult activity, and for a <laughs> child to be doing this is a crack up, you know? Uh -huh. And how did, um, how did Alex see Lucas? He was very loving and affectionate towards him. Um, a little bit protective of him, certainly in in um, in representing him to others. They went to two different schools, so um, Alex's peers generally didn't know about Lucas until Alex told them. And so he might say something like, "I have a brother in a wheelchair," and his friends would look at him like, "No, you don't," you know. And then he'd sort of have to be this little mini advocate that would talk about what a rare disease sibling is like. 
Yeah. And how much did he um, understand about Lucas's diagnosis and life expectancy at different at different ages? Pretty early on, I, I can't remember how early on we we let him know that there was mortality involved. There was a short lifespan. And I think for a while we tried to keep that vague, like someday. But for example, this year, December, we had been told Lucas was probably looking at months, not years. And then we got a little more um, direct with Alex and saying, you know, this is coming. This isn't just coming at some point. Because there were earlier, maybe a few years ago, conversations with Alex, you know, being as young as he was, saying things like, well, how will Lukey find someone to marry? They're like, oh, no, that, that's not in the cards. Mm-hmm. And we're just not going to get to that point of Lucas's life. And so the idea of shorter lifespan was probably there early on for Alex, but how short, maybe just in the last year, we got to that reality with him. Yeah. How did he um, and all of you react to Alex recently passing away? And how are you all coping with that? I think Lucas passing, of course, it's terrible. It's tragic. We we all, you know, were reeling from it. But I think in a way we had been grieving it or pre-grieving it for his entire life. And... I don't know that that really prepares you, but I think it it um, it stretches that experience, which is normally shocking, the loss of a child, right? Um, it's not so much of a shock event. And I was just noticing in the Kubler-Ross um, Five Stages of Grief um, literature, you would assume grief is triggered by death, but some of the literature says it's a shock event. It's not necessarily a death. And the shock event was diagnosis day. Everything after that was less shocking, even a downturn, like being told he had months, not years. Um, So we were somewhat prepared. And I don't mean that to sound like it wasn't terrible, but it was less shocking. It, it It was something that was foreseen for a long time. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We'll be back with patient stories in just a minute. If you would like to speak with a genetic counselor but don't know where to start, Great Genetics is here to help. We know that finding a genetic counselor can be challenging. Here at Great Genetics, we offer genetic counseling in a variety of specialty areas. Whether you're interested in cancer, family planning, or cardiovascular genetics, you can connect with a certified genetic counselor who will evaluate your family history and even coordinate testing if necessary, all over the phone or secure video conferencing. Check out this service and more on greygenetics.com. That's G-R-E-Y genetics.com. You mentioned earlier that your way of dealing with things, you're someone who's very outward facing. So one, I know one of the outward facing things that you did, you founded or co-founded the Rare Outreach Coalition. Um, And I think the main activity of that organization is to put on a rare disease film festival every year. Is that correct? Yeah. um, So my efforts, uh, sort of my first baby step was to write about Lucas on blog posts. And when that met with a reaction that seemed to tell me people needed to hear these stories, wanted to hear these stories. 
I then decided to make a film about Lucas and two other boys with Menke's disease. And then having that film, the next challenge was, where do you show it? And when I met Bo Bigelow at a rare disease conference, the Global Genes Conference, um, we were talking about that, you know, what are the best places to show films like this? And Bo was thinking of making a film for his daughter's condition, USP7. And we kept in touch on that. And it occurred to me that um, film festivals had their appeal and their purpose, but they were generally uh, a general interest audience, not a tailored audience uniquely concerned with health issues. And then medical conferences were the other side of the coin where the audience is very dedicated to medical issues, but you might not have the easy access. You know, it's, it can be expensive to attend a medical conference where it's relatively inexpensive to go to a film festival. So in talking to Bo, I said, can we combine the two? Can we have the targeted appeal of a conference, but the easy access of a film festival and the general interest of a film festival? And when we realized there was nothing like that out there, we decided maybe it fell to us to create that. So Disorder the Rare Disease Film Festival debuted in Boston in 2017. And then we did another one in 2019 in San Francisco. And we were on track to do one this spring in New York City, May in Manhattan in a movie theater full of rare disease patients. Up until March, it seemed like a pretty good idea. And now it seems like one of the worst ideas in the world. <laughs> yeah, like an audience, it would be like the the, like a very high risk audience, right? All, all in one place, probably. Exactly. All the most vulnerable people. Yeah. And do you have a background in film or did have? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my, my real career uh, took me to Hollywood early on in, in the early nineties. And uh, I was set out to be a filmmaker and actually uh, ended up being more of a marketer of films. Most of my career was marketing films, uh, big and small. And then I returned back to my hometown in upstate New York and took a look around this beautiful little town of Balsam Spa, New York, which doesn't have a movie theater, and said, maybe they need a film festival. So I created mm-hmm. the Balsam Spa Film Festival, ran that for about four years, and someone else continued it on until it ran for 10 years. And then when it came time to do a rare disease film festival, I at least was bringing some experience to that. Okay, that makes a lot of sense because all of a sudden I'm like, hmm, <laughs> seems like a lot of work. I saw the I saw the film that I'll include in the show notes. It looks very professional. So okay, that makes sense that you actually did have a background in that. So when the Rare Disease Film Festival was postponed this year, um, you ended up starting a streaming channel called the Disorder Channel. Can you tell me how more about that? How that happened? Yeah, obviously, you know, pandemic changed everyone's plans and. Um, many film festivals pivoted to being a virtual film festival. And Bo and I talked about that possibility, but we had already had it in the back of our minds that maybe someday we would want to have a TV channel. And so we thought maybe instead of a virtual film festival, we would launch our channel. And as we looked at it as at first as sort of a consolation prize. If you can't do the festival, you can do this. But then as we started to dive into it, we realized it had its own strengths. So one of those being at our festival, our time was limited. So we might pick a shorter film instead of a longer film, even though the longer film might be as good or better. 
Um, and in the channel, we didn't have those time constraints. So we actually ended up going back to some of our filmmakers where in the festival we said, do you have a shorter version? We'd like to show that. Now we're going back to them saying, we don't want the shorter version. We want the longer version. And on a similar note, um, we might have one or two festival films in a festival on the same disease topic, but we wouldn't want three or four or five. So if it was Batten disease and we already had two films on that, we might not say yes to any more. But in the channel setup, we can fit more of them. We can accommodate them. So why not have five films on Batten disease if they're all good films, right? Right. And how, who's making these films? Like, I, I didn't think that there were that many people who were both part of the rare disease community and professional filmmakers. I would think that you might be one of the few people who has both of those things. <laughs> we weren't sure when we started either. We, that was a major fear of ours that maybe there weren't enough films, but we knew a few people personally that had them. We thought, well, we can build on that. And it turns out there's a different mix. There are many people that are the DIY types. You know, I am the personal person who's affected or the family of the affected person. And I want to make this film and I'll just get it done if I have to use my cell phone or some, some uh, semi-professional gear or whatever I need to do, I'm going to make this film. So that's one type. But then there are these sort of professional or more experienced filmmakers who simply found a good story. And that story happened to be a rare disease story. And then perhaps there's another category where industry wants to tell these stories. So whether that's a, a testing lab or a biopharma company that wants to tell patient stories because it puts a face on their mission. And some of our films were made for those purposes and they tend to have better budgets. And that's nice. So we are pulling from all those different sources. And we were surprised how many films are out there and they keep coming. Every year we ask for more films and we find more films. What kinds of things can people watch on the Disorder channel? And is it something that's already active lives? Can someone go and watch something today or is it not quite launched yet? It, it is, the channel is live and launched. Um, if you search, if you have a Roku device or an Amazon Fire device and you search for us, it'll come up. Or you could search for any one of our films by name and those will come up and then you can start playing these films for free. And I think people's expectation, which makes sense, is that we have sad documentaries. And we have, we have a lot of those. But we also have things that are not sad documentaries and that I think surprises people. We have a comedy series. We have a, a, um, a self, we're, we're, we will soon have a self-care series for either the patients or the caregivers to sort of, you know, just be mind, do mindfulness or do yoga or do stress relief exercises. And we have talk show type format too. Uh, so we have some episodic things. So it's not all documentaries. We have some fictional films. Some even have fantasy elements or animation elements to them. So there's a bit of variety. There's some rare disease films that come from the sports world you know, a, a famous pole vaulter or a famous hockey player telling their story of both their rare disease and how it changed their athletic career. Hmm. What is the, so I'm most, the one that's like hardest for me to picture, what does the comedy series look like? How does that relate to rare disease? There's a series called Stop the Bleeding, which is made by Believe Media, a great organization. Um, 
and they've done at least six seasons. We are showing their sixth season and they, hemophilia is a larger population. So you can imagine there's more stories to be told and they have each season sort of taken it in a different direction. So it's, it's farcical, but it still contains actual accurate sort of medical information Mm-hmm. Uh, for the anecdotal for the patient experience, um, not for like diagnosis or, you know, research purposes. Uh-huh. Um, and so season six, they're at a camp for kids that are uh, hemophiliacs and, you know, just the different issues. Some of it's regular sort of meatballs comedy, you know, the general summer camp comedy stuff, but some of it gets interspersed with, and now I have to stop my normal activities because I have to do an injection. Okay, so like rare disease as a as a setting for um, yep for what you think like a normal show like it takes place at a camp it just happens to be a camp specifically for people with rare disease yeah that makes a lot of sense right what do you wish that people or doctors knew about minky syndrome or because minky syndrome is so rare maybe just rare diseases more generally well I, I think everybody with a rare disease wishes the knowledge of it was more common so doctors, you know, they can't be expected to know all 7,000 rare diseases. It's just not going to happen. So then you find yourself saying, well, couldn't they just know about mine? You know, this one disease, Menke's right. disease. <laughs> and, and it does, Menke's in particular seems like a really good candidate. And that's why it's eventually moving into more and more newborn screenings now that that's a possibility. Because if you knew it was also called kinky hair syndrome, you can't wait the four months to see the developmental symptoms, but you can see the hair symptom right away if you knew about it, if you knew to look for it, and then you might order the test. And then there's a treatment that works in the first 10 days. So it's, it's an amazing outcome that you can have go much better or much worse if you know to look for it. So that would be something I'd encourage, you know, more people in the medical profession, you know, OBGYNs and um, neurologists, if they could be aware of that, that would be fantastic. As genetic counselors, I think we all learn something very brief about minky syndrome in school, um, you know, knowing the kinky hair, that it's also called kinky hair syndrome. And if we see something like that, you know, you're not going to remember um, these hundreds of diseases off the top of your head, but we know to go and look it up. Um, but for a newborn baby that might not have much hair, like how subtle can that be? Or how hard is it to actually notice kinky hair as a feature? That's a good point. You, you actually, you're right. You have to have hair to notice a hair symptom. I think Minky's boys usually do have a decent head of hair when they're born. Mm-hmm. For most, it's, it's the bald spot in the back where you make contact, the back of the skull makes contact with the sleeping pad. So that will just break away. There'll be a bald spot there. And that's a pretty good indicator. The actual kink you probably know this i think the latin is pili torchy so it's twisted hair more than this kinky hair so mm-hmm. you might need a microscope to to really see that but i think you could see the breakaway of the hair and there's often a hair discoloration so these boys tend to be blonde or light-haired even if you're a black family and you have a child you'd expect to have dark black hair it can sometimes be gray hair so that's certainly a you know a uh, bit of a, wa- a warning sign, I guess. And you mentioned that this is something that some states are working on getting added to newborn screening. 
Yes, I think it's in six states right now, and we're working on more. Um, and that's great news. That's only recently become possible. You know, in the last year, newborn screening kind of got to ninety-nine point five percent accuracy. So it was it was a viable option. Oh well, do you know? Are they doing molecular genetic testing? Are they actually looking for mutations? Or are they looking at copper levels or another analyte? And if you don't know, that's fine too. No, I think. Part of the, I don't know the exact details, but I think part of the chemical analysis, like looking at copper levels, was problematic. And I think that was, um, now they're doing a, um, a dried blood spot, but it, it's not just sort of a chemical analysis, it's an actual genetic analysis that's required. And mm-hmm. another factor there is that the gene testing has become more acceptable on a cost basis. Whereas even when Lucas was born, that was a pretty prohibitive cost. You know, you're not going to just routinely administer a genetic test, right? Right. Yeah, 11 years ago. I talked about what I wish doctors and medical people knew, but for patient population, it's a bit of a different thing. So you get your diagnosis and it's such bad news. And, And one of the reasons I made the film was to put that bad news in context. I can't change the reality of what Menke's disease means. I can't change the prognosis, which is terrible, or the symptoms, which are terrible. But that didn't mean we weren't going to have a life with our child. And I think it sounds like you won't. It sounds like the diagnosis is a death sentence very soon. And you have to redefine what soon is. Are you going to have a few years? How many is a few? Are you going to have 10 years? And you're going to live that life. And some of it's going to have joy. A lot of it, hopefully, for us, certainly, a lot of it had joy. So the reason I made the film and called it Finding Help and Hope was so that people getting this diagnosis could see other families moved on from the terror of Diagnosis Day to sometimes a good life, you know, in large part, a good life or ups and downs like any other life. And that is hard to imagine the closer you are to diagnosis day. Yeah. Is there, do you think that just takes time and everyone gets there at a different point or is there anything specifically that you felt like helped you get to that point of feeling like you were farther from the terror of diagnosis day and really feeling more hopeful? I I think it is a large amount about the time and the distance and, and the thought you give it and you're adjusting to it. And maybe there's no substitute for time proving that you're going to go on. You don't think you can go on. You don't think your child can go on, but you do. Uh, so time, you know, does help. Um, But I think, you know, information helps, uh, communication helps, finding others. If you can find your community, that will change things so much for the better, just to have someone who gets it, who may have been through very similar things. And it was tricky for me to realize how different you can be based on how far along the journey you are. So for a while, I was the new parent with zero experience. And then 
years had gone by and I'd been in the Facebook support group and it took me a while to realize, oh, I'm not the newbie anymore. I'm the <laughs> veteran. Because when you're looking at a lifespan of maybe a decade and you've got seven years, you're the elder statesman. Mm-hmm. And it, it took me a while to realize I might have answers that somebody else wanted. And if you can find the person who's farther out than you are, he or she can be a huge help, you know, and, and every stage of this, you know, um, right now, the most valuable people to my wife and I, I think, are the ones who have lost a child to a rare disease, because that's mm-hmm. our new experience to grapple with. And that's right. our, our, in some ways, our unknowns have stopped, right? All the looming uh, dread ended when Lucas died. But our grief process is another unknown. You know, is this, are we doing okay now, but it's going to rear up again in three months and we don't know about that. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Are there certain resources that you've found specifically to help you deal with that grief or to connect specifically with parents of children with rare diseases who've, who've lost those children? Certainly the Menkes Foundation has always been a great comfort and help to us. Uh, A little bit later on, I discovered, because of the film festival, I discovered Courageous Parents Network. And uh, that deals a bit with palliative care. I think there's a lot of misunderstandings about palliative care, and I can't recommend it enough. It it sounds off-putting because it sounds like you're admitting defeat for your child or your loved one. But it, that has been such a great resource for us, the palliative care team at our local hospital, both and the Courageous Parents Network, and of course, the, the Facebook group of support for Mankey's families. Before the experience of being a father to Lucas, did you have any experience with rare disease or genetics? And is there anything that you believed for a long time that you just found out was, was wrong that really surprised you in your experience of becoming involved in the rare disease community and being a father to Lucas? I knew very close to zero about any of this world before I was thrust into it with my son. And I've learned, I think, a ton since. But um, one thing is just it's it's a club you'd never want to belong to. You'd never wish anyone had to belong to it. But when you're in it, you meet the most amazing people. There's so many, I consider them heroes, that are facing things like this and helping each other. There's so much um, support across diseases. It, it doesn't matter if, if your symptoms are similar or not. The, the experience, the rare disease experience is pretty similar. Maybe to illustrate my lack of understanding before and my current understanding being a little better, I do remember that prior to having a special needs child, I'd hear stories of the Special Olympics, for example, of, you know, if my child can run 30 feet, that's like seeing your child run a marathon. And Mm -hmm. I never at a gut level really believed the people saying that. I thought maybe that was a coping, comforting device they used to make themselves feel better. But now I I get that. I believe that entirely. I, I watched my son grip a pen and he only did it a few times in his life and he could barely do that but when he did it that was a day we wanted to pop champagne you know that was amazing to see him and the look on his face when he saw marks coming out of the end of a marker on paper because he moved it you know that felt like summiting a great mountain 
Patient Stories is an ad-free podcast and is unaffiliated with any commercial genetic testing laboratories. We would like to keep it that way. You can now donate to Patient Stories online by going to graygenetics.com slash podcast slash donate. If you don't want to make a monetary donation but still want to support the show in another way, leaving a review on iTunes or sharing our episodes through social media also makes a big difference. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute medical advice and is also not a substitute for genetic counseling. Neither Gray Genetics nor any of its guests makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Evaluation of an individual's personal and family health history is a crucial part of genetic counseling and any recommendations.